And so here in Utah, I really focus on acorns. That's a big thing for me, is when I can find acorns, I can find elk. Hey everybody, welcome to the Hoyt Bow Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Danny Ferris, and today uh, we've got Ryan Carter from DC Outfitters. You might remember him because he is returning from episode one of the Hoyt Bow Hunting Podcast. First one we ever did was Ryan Carter. And uh, welcome back, man. Good to have you Thanks, again. Buddy. Yeah, it's nice to uh, have a different host this time. I, I like Alan, but I, I love new faces too. Uh, well, we'll see what your opinion is after this is done. <laughs> oh, yeah? <laughs> right, Evan? <laughs> yeah, well, he has to see mine most of the time anyway, so that's what the reference is really towards. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, it's good to have you today. We're going to be talking about, you know, uh, like I said, Ryan owns DC Outfitters and um, he uh, he's been dealing with some new regulations regarding game cameras in his home state of Utah. Um, there's several states that are having to deal with these. And we're going to talk about uh, strategies for scouting elk without game cameras and uh, um some guys are up against that. Or if you're coming west for the first time, you drew an elk tag and you're coming west to do a DIY for the first time. Um, maybe Ryan's going to give us a little bit of help on, on some how to find elk, how to do some uh, scouting before your hunt begins and, and hopefully try and pull some up. So um, Ryan, like we were just talking about, if you find Ryan on, on Instagram, He's Ryan underscore DC Outfitters. And the first thing on his Instagram today is this huge bull, like beautiful man. And his Instagram is, is just full of these things. And we were talking a little offline about what he thinks about the new regulations. And, and luckily for him, I mean, give us your opinion, Ryan, on kind of how this is going to go and how, how it's going and how it's going forward. Oh, well, my, my opinion I, you know, it, it's a, it's a, just a funny law. It's a funny way to attack chair fake, fair chase. Yeah. If that makes sense. Like if, if, if the goal is to, um, kind of rein back technology, um, I, I I'd like to see what's the goal on that. Are we trying to, um, increase our age class? Are we trying to increase opportunity? Like we're we trying to give more tags away. And if that's the case, are we, are we really, going about it the right reason like are we going about it the right way if, yeah. if we're targeting trail cameras um and i don't i don't know from a mule deer perspective but from an elk perspective um trail cameras the the only thing they really do um i can early season pattern bulls i can winter season pattern bulls mm -hmm. but typically most elk hunts are done during the rut and Truck cameras pattern, don't do anything. Patterns out the window. Yeah. Right. The, the pattern's gone. They're just, they're cruising. They're chasing cows. Cows lead the way. Um, the real role of a trail camera in, in any sense, in, in any season for any species is to assess age class. You pull a tag in Iowa, you're going to lay out 18 cameras and you're going to assess what kind of age class you're going to be going for, whether it's three-year-old whitetails or six-year-old whitetails. You're just trying to figure out what you're going for and that, here with elk it's the same thing we're trying to decide if day one if we're supposed to be shooting a 340 bull or holding out for a 375 are we going for book are we going for a five-year-old what are we doing that's the role of the trail camera 
yes, there are a few guys that can capitalize on patterning and killing elk. I've seen it done a couple times, but it's not very often. And it's guys who are just working their asses off to do it. So what's my opinion? I'm like, man, you just took the fun out of it. That's my opinion. Right. But, right. Yeah. And, and for those of you that don't know, um, Utah does allow trail cameras up until a certain point in the year. And then that is, right. and then we've got to pull them. So it's, it's July 31st is the last active day that you can have a trail camera in the woods. Well, not, and the, well, and that's not true. Okay. You can run cameras all year round. You can't use cameras to aid in harvest. The actual law is, that how, is, is no, that how they wrote no it? aid in harvest. So if you don't have a tag or you don't have a license for the area, like, I, d- dude, I don't even hunt Utah. I do not have active licenses here. So without my commercial use permit, I could still run cameras all I want. However, I am a guide and I do have active use permits in the forest service. So yes, I have to pull my cameras from the units I have them on, but the units that I don't, well, means I can run all the cameras I want, Hmm. but so so yes, you can run cameras year round. It's not a ban. It's not a hundred percent. No cameras. Right. What it is, is a no aid in harvest law. Okay. Right. So is that a gray area when, uh, let's say that somebody has a camera on a waterhole that is on the opposite end of a ridge or a range or something, and they kill a bull way over here, but then they find out that they had a camera out somewhere, um, they can be ticketed because they had a camera out, or does it matter whether that camera played into the harvest of an animal or not? Well, I think that's exactly what it is. I think that would refer to you using a camera for aid and harvest. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think they'd go after you on that one. And so my perceptive perception of the whole thing is, well, I, they don't want you to use it for kills. Great. I'm going to pull all my cameras. Right. Like I, I, don't, I don't ever think rules are a bad thing. I think mm-hmm. rules are what define the great hunters. Mm-hmm. The guys who can follow the rules and do it consistently are the guys that just, I mean, they're the legends, right? I told my guides, I'm like, I, I, I expect you guys to still do what you're doing. Like all these things ever did is give us an age class. And we have that because we were able to run till July 31st. Right. We know which bulls we're chasing. We know kind of their routines and I will still have bow hunters sitting the first week of the hunt, like on their patterns. Mm-hmm. But come Labor Day, the pins pulled, and we're chasing just like we always were before. Right. The, the, there's no pattern to the rut. So. Right. Well, I had uh, uh, didn't Arizona do something similar too? Is it is it very similar to the way that Utah structured it? Arizona is is an outright ban on cameras with hunting. Okay. Yeah. Right. But like I can run cameras in Arizona because I don't hunt or guide Arizona. Right. And, and I don't know how they're regulating it. I don't know how Utah is either. I, I have no idea. You know, they've told people you can report the camera, but don't touch them. Mm-hmm. They are private property. Mm-hmm. But it, it's like, how do you regulate that without pulling the camera and checking it as an officer? Yeah. And then what, yeah. if, he's, what if he's wrong? He's going to rip a camera off a tree and then, oh, this, well, this isn't Ryan DC Outfitters like they said it was. What's right. he going to do? Put it back? Mm-hmm. Right. Dig up, dig up the finder. I have no idea. 
See, and just to play devil's advocate a little bit, um, what do you what do you say to somebody when they're like, "Man, I'm glad this happened because I'm sick of pulling up on water holes when I go down coos deer hunting and finding thirty cameras on the same water hole." You know what I mean? And on every single place, and you know, I that's happened to me before. Uh, it was really the only issue with game cameras that I ever fr- that I ever encountered. You know, but in my opinion, I was like, man, make guys just like when you're riding an ATV out on public land or something like that, you've got to have a permit and a sticker on that ATV. Why didn't they just have guys register their game cameras and turn it into a revenue source Mm -hmm. and say, you got to have this sticker on the outside of the game camera saying it's registered and you know where it's at or something like that. You must love paying your taxes. (laughs) No, man, I don't. But I mean, honestly, I'd rather see that than a ban. You know what I mean? No, I'm with you. And, but, you know, and and I look at like guys who say what you just said. I, you know, I have this spot in Arizona I love. And every time I pull in there, there's 15 cameras. And I'm like, how did it affect your hunt? Didn't. How did it, how did it change things? Like, sounds like your feelings are hurt, but how did it change your hunt? Yeah. And most of the time it's like, well, it didn't. Yeah. Well, it did because that, you don't hunt that water hole sometimes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you, and, you decide not to. But and, and I, I, and again, this is not a personal experience. But I know of one guy that has had. Uh, it was a it was a high desert Utah elk tag and similar situation where there was two main water sources and the one that they were hunting primarily, they rolled up and it had twelve cameras on it and. They sat on it that day, and in the middle of the day, yeah. they had guys coming down to check cameras. Yeah. So. Well. That is, that Welcome to is. public land. And, yeah. and, and again, that's the <laughs> yeah. same thing. Like, like if I've got that, and it's a it's a later season, say it's a rifle tag. Yeah, it's public land. There is a current season in play, but it's not my tag, and I have every right to still be there. So. And I'm sure, I'm sure anybody listening to this has had some type of public land experience along those lines. Yeah. Well, uh, dude, I, again, like it, I'm so like everything that's been brought up are feelings. Mm-hmm. I, I walked in water hole. My feelings were hurt. There was 15 cameras. I, I sat a water hole. 10 guys came in and checked it. My feelings were hurt. It, it, dude, you're still just like when your grandpa used to hunt mule deer, right? Like when you went out on opening day and there's 10,000 pumpkins, there's orange spots all <laughs> over the mountain. You didn't hunt by running the normal patterns that you saw them the week before the hunt doing. No, you were setting up on saddles, waiting for those guys to push those deer to you to capitalize on it. And you're going to do the exact same thing on a water hole that, you know, guys are going to come in and check cameras, yeah, like figure true. it out, be, be smarter than the next dude. It's, yeah. it's not a matter of like, the cameras did anything because they didn't. Right. They, they take pictures of animals as they walk through. Right. Like, I, I know there's ways to capitalize on the patterning, but man, I'm telling you, the only job of that camera is to assess H class. Mm-hmm. And like, if you're going to sit there and have your feelings hurt, you're going to lose. Yeah. It, what you got to do is capitalize on the information and outplay the next dude. Well, let's talk about how to do that a little bit. Why don't we talk about some of your strategies for, uh, for scouting elk, especially for somebody that doesn't necessarily have a whole lot of time to do it. You know what I mean? Or somebody that's coming out on their first 
western elk hunt and they're trying to do a DIY, they're not going through a guide service, how do we find elk? How do we scout elk without putting game cameras out? Uh, you know, there's some states where you still can, but that's generally not the method that I still, that I see seen or that I see used because they are in the rut and they are all over the place. So uh, uh, one of the biggest mistakes that I ever saw guiding here in Colorado was when somebody from the east came out to the west, they'd find one ridge and find a, a little bit of elk sign on it, and they'd just concentrate on way too small of a core area, you know, when in out here, you might have six ridges in a row that are identical, and that herd's going to be on the fourth one today, you know what I mean? And if you're sitting there concentrating on the first ridge the entire time, you might not see them for the whole two weeks that you're there. Um, so anyway, I'll let you take it from there, Ryan, and just talk a little bit about some of the strategies that you recommend or that you use for scouting elk now that you're, you know, without, without game cameras. Hmm. Man, that, the answer to that varies so, it's so vast. Right. Um, because Colorado, for instance, uh, you do have an early season archery, mm -hmm. uh, but that early season archery still starts in September, mm -hmm. right when the elk are starting to move. They're starting to cruise and peel their velvet, and then in the middle of it, you have a muzzleloader season. So how do I, how would I scout scout for elk for what season? Am I the October October fifth rifle? Or are we talking about early season? No, we're talking archery. We're, we're it's not even early season. The, yeah, uh, yeah, it's well, not early. It, and even then, yeah, it's September fifth or something so we're still talking mm -hmm. man they're starting to cruise it's not like you can capitalize on bulls that you got on camera other than yeah i kind of know they're in this area colorado is one of those states that there's no patterns to it but you know like you're going to reach out to your biologist problem with biologists is they tell you all the guys go to the same camera canyons yeah. right mm -hmm. like yeah. you call on a unit and they're like oh there's always elk in this canyon and so you already know when you call a biologist, that's that. I like to break down social media. It's one of my first go-tos. I start researching outfitters in the area. I go to their social media. I see what kind of animals they're posting. I'll reach out to guys that have been successful in those areas, guys that with the outfitters, without the outfitters. I always do a ton of homework before I even like step foot on the unit. Um, and, and knowing your season always helps. There are a few states like Utah that open in August that you can capitalize on patterns. Uh -huh. But but even then, elk are elk. Elk yeah. are really simple. And, they, you know, they, they focus on food. They focus on water. They focus on bedding areas. And all those areas, elk travel up in the mornings and down in the evenings. I don't care what state it is. They do the same things. And so... Once I've kind of established what kind of unit I got, what kind of age class I'm at, and kind of assessed what way the biologists are going, then I kind of can sit down on maps and really start focusing on water sources. Mm -hmm. um, cattle drink 12 gallons of water a day, so I'm told. Mm -hmm. Elk, from what I understand, is about six gallons every other day. Mm -hmm. So unlike mule deer, who can go eight days without water, elk have to have water a lot of water all the time. Yeah. Elk also, you know, mule deer shift beds every 45 minutes. 
They have to get up, stretch their legs, move their feet, elk are about an hour and a half. So they've got to be in an area where they can get up, stretch their legs, walk 20 feet, lay back down and still be in the shade because they're freaking huge. Mm -hmm. So water's always key. doesn't matter if you're in the desert or in the high country. You can start marking off streams. Livestock's a big thing to look at. For me, everywhere here in Utah, I have livestock. Some places it's sheep, some places it's moo cows. Mm -hmm. The thing about having livestock in there is that they will kick an entire bachelor herd about bulls out of that area just because just because of their presence but the thing is is the elk don't care about the cows Mm -hmm. they just don't like the taste of the water where the cows are so a lot of the times they just shift up in elevation so i'll start kind of locating benches and i'll start locating the livestock and i'll start figuring out where they kicked the elk to where their fresh water sources are and then i start kind of moving around that from there you can start like locating benches where they bed feeding areas what areas have oak brush elk or nuts about oak right mm-hmm. and so here in utah i really focus on acorns mm-hmm. that's a big thing for me is when i can find acorns i can find elk right because right. it, it's like crack to them it's complete steroids it's a ton of growth and it's a lot of health to those animals so there's just certain things water food shelter benches sure I, then i start breaking it down but it's all footwork right even mm-hmm. even your colorado hunt in the end you're not going to know they're on that fourth ridge until you broke down all seven yeah yeah mm-hmm. that's exactly right that's mm-hmm. exactly right the benches um it sounds like you concentrate on those quite a bit probably more than most because where i focus the majority of the time i'm on a plateau Right. And the, those plateaus just break down like a staircase, right? Sure. And so my personally, my what I spend a lot of time on is locating elevations or bands that the elk like to walk. Mm-hmm. It's not very often elk do a pattern like a whitetail where they're going up and down a ridge. They will mm-hmm. walk long benches and circle back to the areas they were prior. So I right. do try to locate those bands. <laughs> How do you deal with it when you got water all over the place? I know well, that in some units it, it's isolated in some units. It's just everywhere. Every drainage has water running down through it. Uh, fresh water sources are still pretty rare. So like where I'm at, I have a ton of water. You can't go 300 yards without water, but at the same time they overgraze every year. They're four to 700 heads of beef come off the mountain that weren't acquired for when they went up like they're way overgrazed. And so finding fresh water is the key for me on an area that has a ton of water. Uh Like it's really tougher than you think. Um, so that's, that's one of the keys, I guess. Um, I, I still elk still go back to the same areas. They're very routine. Right. Um, and generationally young, too. Yes. Like, oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yep. And like the, when they're younger, they're getting in bigger bachelor herds and then the older bulls kind of peel away and do their own things. Um, so it, finding the older age class is a little bit harder. Their patterns are bigger. Their, ro- their rotations are bigger. The tighter groups of young bulls, you, you'll see a lot more frequent. Yeah. <laughs> It, yeah, it's crazy to me how, you know, those spots are established and you can come back 
10 years later and you know elk that weren't even alive at that time they're back in the same spots Mm -hmm. oftentimes Mm -hmm. it's oftentimes why i tell people i would rather have an average unit that i'm very familiar with than a great unit that i'm walking into cold you know Mm -hmm. uh and people ask me about that when it comes to uh drawing strategy should i save up my points for this one unit and hunt it one year i'm like man save up for one that you can hunt three times during that time that you would have been saving for the one mm-hmm. you know did you get to know i think that it's great ahead. advice no i was just saying i think that's great advice yeah yeah we get so many people that are saving up for the premium premium unit and they end up hunting it one time in you know 15 20 years you know yep. and what you find out when you go into one of those is by the end of the hunt, you have things figured out and then you can't ever go back again. (laughs) Well, and you know, to the, to the same point, I I've noticed personally, cause I, you know, I've started skipping skates states around a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, the premier units, you know, really there's only nine or 10, right? Like there's, there's three in Utah and there's four in Arizona and two in Nevada and, like unit two and 10, maybe in Colorado. And there's just a couple like rock star units. I've noticed like, yeah, overall the age class is better. And yes, your opportunity of 350 class bull is premier, but the giant, giant bulls are coming off a lot of the average units that don't have as much pressure, but you know, they're finding a hole and they're getting in there on the rut. Everyone's cleaning out the three thirties, which that's the age class they're going for. Mm-hmm. But you know, our average, our average units are producing the biggest bulls the last four years pretty consistently. Really? They're and in Utah? Arizona and Nevada's doing the same thing. I, I'm noticing more big bulls coming off units that are managed for five-year-old bulls rather than seven plus mm-hmm. because not everybody's holding out for the giant, giant bulls. Yeah, they're, they're getting that tag that they expect to only have one time and they're shooting the first legal bull that comes in that's respectable. Right. Well, and I, I just, it's just something I've kind of noticed just kind of skipping around. I, I really feel like, man, you're, you're a lot smarter not playing the point creep because the point creeps horrible. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like go for an average unit, go have a great time, have high expectations, do your hours, put out cameras. If it's legal, find the best bull you can yeah. kill the oldest one possible. Even if it's on a premier unit and he's 360, oldest age class possible at all times. Anywhere you are. Mm-hmm. Yep. Where, where, what age do you feel like elk top out potential wise? It's all genetics. Uh, and, yeah. and like this year in particular, it, it's like um, I've had bulls, probably one of our biggest bulls this year. I, I think he's been a 350, 360 bulls for the last six years. He's yeah. probably 12 this year from the way I figure it. Right. And he just exploded. I mean, he literally, I think it was just um, unit-wide, we're looking really good for elk. Mm-hmm. Like, typically, I have four or five bulls that might hit book, 375 or better. Mm-hmm. And this year, I think I have 14. And, and I just think it was one of those years, like, we had a combo of a really dry spring, which put a lot of mineral into the feed. And then monsoons hit, and, I mean, it just water everywhere. And mm-hmm. so the elk are looking really good. I, I see Utah and Arizona having two of the best years they've ever had. Really? Hmm. And, well, and I don't know just, how much those monsoons affect Nevada, but those two states are going to look really good. 
Okay. Interesting. That's the same thing that we saw here in Colorado this year. Super dry spring. We were all afraid the whole state was going to be on fire come July. And then in June, it just started raining. And a lot of those mountain units, uh, I'm being told there's been like two days the entire summer that it didn't rain significantly, you know. Mm-hmm. But should be should be good. That's that's good to hear. I'd never heard anybody say that a dry spring puts minerals in the feed, but um, that's that's cool if that's the case. Well, the desert animals. If you look at like some of Utah's biggest bucks, mm-hmm. the ones that came off like Pine Valley, and uh, you know just some of the high desert type stuff, the Circle Cliffs, the Henry Mountains anything super high desert we actually had our best bucks on dry years and the same goes for desert elk dry years typically produce some really big animals but right. i think the wet spring this year helped and i i've i have one bull that put on close to 50 inches this year over the last five. Oh wow it's wow. not like his body looks any bigger or different his right. body looks the same as it always does and you know, he's got a big lightning bolt scar down his back. I, I know him inside now, and I, I'm telling you, 50 inches in one year, it's pretty phenomenal. That is insane. That's, that's crazy. Well, and so is most of your guiding and most of your hunting, you know, I always refer to it as lower elevation elks, kind of elk kind of uh, cedar and juniper country versus high elevation um uh, ponderosa pine and alpine type elk hunting a lot of the stuff that i do here in colorado is alpine it's higher country um and i know that you're talking about lower elevations where you've got uh maybe some acorn crops and things like that are there big differences in how you approach the preseason in those two different scenarios so your desert or lowland elk versus high elevation the only difference for me is like kind of looking at where they're going to migrate to on the, the rut. Okay. Po, po, Cause it'll change, like it'll change the cow behavior. And so if I, if I've had a really dry desert season, when they start migrating down, it's typically slower and typically on dry years, the rut ends up being a little bit later. Whereas on wet years, it triggers a little bit earlier and they'll start pulling to that low country faster. Um, I, I hunt that like, seriously, I, I think 50% of my bulls are at 11,000 feet and 50% of them are at 7,700 feet. That's about as low as I go. Right. And the, the only thing that changes is how quick the tr- rut triggers really for me. Right. Huh. With the, it, do you feel like it triggers sooner in the higher elevations? Um, yeah, they'll they'll fire off earlier. Your young bulls always kind of kick in. The second their velvet comes off, they it's like being they're a freshman in go. college, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. They're they're like this is our chance. This is our time to shine. Rut right. never kicks in till the cows start stinking. Really, I mean, so a lot of your big big bulls that they'll follow the herds and do their thing, but they're more interested in feed than pushing cows when they're not hot. Right. Yeah. They're not gonna waste the energy. It's the old bull, young bull story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> young bull's anxious to go running down there, and old bull says to him, "We all know what he says." Um, right. <laughs> but well, um, man. So <laughs> this game camera thing, even before it happened, you weren't really using them to scout 
for the season anyway. You're just breaking down the age classes and knowing. So for most of these bulls that you were locating in this early, early season, how far do they usually end up leaving from that area where you found them on the game cameras earlier in the, can it be a long, long ways? Or are they generally, you know, in the same terrain? Well, we were just, we were just looking at one of the bulls, um, summered about 89 to 9,000 feet, spent the whole summer on two big ridges and his rotation just pretty much went around him. It was probably eight mile rotation. Once pre-rut kicks in, he pulled into some higher elevation, stayed in there, rubbed his antlers, was in there about, I don't know, two, maybe 10 days. Then he pulled straight down onto the desert, was down there for three days, went all the way back in. Holy smokes. Grabbed cows. Within four days, was all the way back down in the desert, and it was 16 miles apart. And his summer range was kind of in the middle in that eight-mile range. Um, So, I mean, they – Elk can move, man. Like, oh. if they want to, they're gonzo. And yeah. some of them, like a lot of them on their winter, because, I, I mean, I've been running these cameras for years and years, and some of them migrate between 35, 50 miles. Mm-hmm. Most of them are, stay within a, you know, 16 to 18 mile range, under 20 miles from where they kind of summer to their winter. Right. But right. They, they all move. All of them put on some miles. Like, but, cameras are cool, man. But yeah. really, you you can't capitalize on them for killing things. Mm-hmm. Um, patterning can work. I've seen a couple guys do it. Like you can get on, watch Eric Chesser. He had a spot where that bull crossed through. He arrowed him twice before he killed him. And it's just a matter of sitting there and being quiet. And yeah. He did it. It happens, but it, it is pretty damn rare. It, I mean, for trophy age class, like it, a lot of guys can hunt a tree stand, kill a bull. Mm-hmm. But you know, going for that three seventy five plus and waiting like five six bulls that I know of, you know, there's not a whole bunch of them. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and it depends upon which state you're in. There's even fewer. <laughs> you know. Well, well yeah, because that that goes yeah. back to our, like when our season dates start, right? Yeah. Like some of them are super late, some are early. Most states like their bow hunters and put them right in the rut. Yeah. Utah doesn't like their bow hunters and, <laughs> and they, they give the rifle guys the September 20th date, which is the magic mark. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's, so it's weird. That's when rifle starts in Utah. About the 17th. Yeah. This year, it's usually oh. between the 15th and 21st. That's freaking terrible, dude. I didn't oh, realize the, that. Oh, it's the best. I mean, if you're a rifle, well, if, if you're a rifle, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's, it's, it's like, a good it's way like to, Nebraska's deer season. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exact same thing because Nebraska is usually about, what, the 14th of, 14th of November? Yeah. Yep. yep. Same deal. Oh, well, it's a good way to eliminate that age class that's getting after the cows. That's for damn sure. Right. <laughs> yeah. But that – that early season that, yeah, I mean, like you were saying, what, what, when does archery season start in Utah? Mid, mid, uh, mid August. Yeah. This year it's the 20th and that's, that's usually late. about the latest. Yeah. It's usually around the 14th, 16th, something like that. Yeah. So how often during, during that August time span, you know, kind of before those big bulls are getting on cows, 
is your favorite favorite method to jump on water or is it to uh try and find locate bachelor groups and hunt in that country kind of where those bulls are bacheloring i focus on ambushing so bachelor groups like typically when they start rubbing the velvet which is usually about the 15th to 22nd of august right Mm -hmm. um those bulls all split up younger bulls might stay together big bulls are always alone by themselves and so yeah, you're hunting a lone bull if you're hunting an older age class bull. And yeah, I try to focus on sitting in a tree stand or a blind, preferably over water or or some kind of bedding area that I know they're going to slip through. You, you always look for those pinch points, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like pinch points. Yeah. And benches. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, a lot of times to get to a bench, they'll be somewhere they got across. It's a tight little pocket, yeah. right? And when yeah. you got those tight pockets, a lot of times you can play with the thermals, but you can't put your stand below. So the wind's blowing in your face, get on the pinch point where it's visible and hopefully catch one slipping. But, you know, it doesn't happen very often. Right. Right. All the same. Yeah. Especially when you're kind of on a limited entry unit going for older age class, it's tough. Yeah. Well, the last time I hunted a very limited entry unit, it was the first week of September and I saw the biggest, the biggest bull that I've ever encountered out in the, uh, out while I was hunting. And he was, he was all by himself. And we, we saw him that one day and never found him again. He was in cedar juniper country and we sat water waiting for him for a long time. Never saw him again though. He, and he was, he was all by himself. The younger bulls were getting after the cows and some of the other bulls were bachelored up, but you're right. Those big dudes are, I think they go find a hole where they can literally lay there and reach their neck this way and eat and then reach their neck this way and, and drink <laughs> and hardly move, you know? Yeah, it might be the case. I've seen them do it. It's yeah. like an old sheep. They get a bed they like and they stay there. Holy smokes. If you're, if, and Ryan, if you're looking at new country, when it comes to elevation, especially, uh, so August 20th for Utah, but again, that, that early part of September, that first through the fifth in Colorado, not necessarily knowing um, elevation changes. Where are you focusing when you're going into a new spot for those more mature bulls when it comes to like on the on the face of a mountain are you looking are you starting in the middle where there's potentially more dark timber um, looking for those water sources um, and wallows or are you immediately going towards the the upper crest of whatever range that you're in whether that's eleven thousand or ten thousand where where are you putting your focus elevation wise well that's a hard question because it doesn't (laughs) It doesn't, elk, that, I mean, it's almost, that's almost a, a deer question. Okay. Elk can, elk can range quite a bit, but typically once they've kind of established where they live, like that elevation band is where they live. Mm-hmm. It, it's not okay. like, so it, like early season, if he's usually at 9,400 feet, I'm going to be focused on 9,400 9, feet. Like they'll go up to bed in a loft that might be two, 300 feet above where they typically run their routes. Mm-hmm. And, but they pull back down at night and 
you know, my grandpa always said, big elk are where you find them. Like mm. we don't, we don't worry about where they are. We kill them where they are. And we worry about the heavy weight afterwards. Okay. And it's going to be the same way. Cause I have bulls that they summer down in the low desert, which is like 7,200 feet for me, which is just yucca cactus, red rock. They don't mm. leave. They're in there all summer. And so where they are is where I find them. Mm-hmm. And so I, I don't ever focus on a specific elevation. I, that's why I have cameras everywhere. So I can figure out, all right, that's home to this guy. Let's bring in 18 more cameras and try to figure out like what his range is. And, and once I can figure out his range, then I can start figuring out a pattern. And typically a lot of these elk, I mean, if I look at the three elk, I have my bow hunters on this year. Um, JJ's 12 this year. Um, the kid that's kind of been watching him has been on him six or seven years, um, named him, knows his routine, knows where he beds. We, you know, we had to coordinate our stands so that he's got an evening stand and a morning stand because the the morning stand will never work where his evening stand goes. He's an old bull, but man, it it took six years to get his pattern down. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, chopsticks this year is 11. That's one of my other bow hunters going for him. He's, I don't even know. He's, he ranges from about 10, three to nine, eight and never much more. His, his pattern's actually pretty tight for what his age class is, but man, I'm telling you, it's taken me. I I've been watching him since 17. So five years on chopsticks to kind of figure out what his routine is. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and then our other, our other bow hunter will be sitting on two bulls, but the, the main one, I think I've been watching him three years mm-hmm. and I'm not going to bring up who he is because he's, I think there's like three or four other guys going after him. Whereas the other two bulls, no one even knows they exist. So yeah. we're in right. good shape. All right. So, so if you've got a bachelor group and let's say there's three bulls in that group and you've kind of got that bachelor groups, typical summer routine when they're still in velvet, when they strip, will the more dominant bull of those three stay there and the other two then have to leave? Or does do all three kind of, they have their fall pre-rut area and they all go to their zone once they start stripping and breaking up? Or again, but, again, is yeah. it, am, am I trying to get either, either like too whitetail minded on this or? No, no, because whitetail and elk are pretty similar, but they all have their personalities, right? Some of them get ornery and they don't want any elk around them whatsoever. And some of them will stay in a hole, just like Danny just brought up. Like they, they get in this little spot and they won't move 10 feet. Yeah. That bull I just posted today, that great big one. Mm-hmm. Um, we sat and watched him for 17 days before we got him killed. And I don't think he moved more than 300 yards in 17 days. Oh, it's yeah. something I've never seen before. For, for my territory, my bulls still, even on their smallest rotations, is about eight miles. And so when these bachelor herds sometimes break up, if they're even, the old bulls sometimes don't do bachelor herds. But if they are and they break up, a lot of times they follow each other through the same little holes. Mm-hmm. Like one bull comes through and two hours later, there's the other one. So it, it all depends. I mean, they all have personalities just like we do. I think those older ones, I I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, Ryan, you've got more experience with old bulls than I do, but they just get there. They, when they shed, they just become less tolerant of anybody 
bugging them, you know, like anybody around young, especially younger bulls, but just less tolerant period and wanting to be by themselves. And there's probably something innate inside them that is telling them to gorge, to eat and drink and rest, eat, drink, rest, because they're, you know, instinctively know that they're coming up on a time where they're going to need it. Pre-gaming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This, yeah. We're, they're tailgating just like we do. Exactly. <laughs> I, <don't know. laughs> I, I kind of, uh, I kind of have this uh, assumption and it's just an assumption, but you know, ant- antlers are like big radiators, right? Like that's what they use to keep cool in the summer that the breeze going through cools their body down. And I really think as that starts to tighten up into July, early August, I think these bulls get kind of aggravated and ornery because they're hot. Yeah. Really? Like, and that's that's why they hit water a little more frequent. And I think they're a little more like less tolerable of each other mm-hmm. because I mean, just like when we're hangry, right? Or we, we get a little aggravated, just world bulls just like they are. Mm-hmm. So, so same kind of uh idea. But I that's what I noticed. Uh, they push the other bulls away or or one dominant bull will take over an area and kick the other ones out. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where you'll see a lot of posturing go on. Like you'll see a bull come in with another bull and they'll, they'll nose up, lip curl. They'll kind of get after each other a little bit and one will run away. Dude, my shipping manager just brought in something, a box that says Hoyt payload rolling duffel. Do you know anything about this, Evan? I do. It looks rather large. It is. That's freaking awesome, dude. Sorry to get off track, Ryan, but I'm excited about that. <laughs> I've got a trip coming up here uh, later uh, during late September uh, to Greenland. And Sweet. I've been trying to uh, figure out which case I wanted to use. And that looks like it's got some promise. It, uh, Yeah, it'll fit an ultra. Okay. All right. Yep. So everybody pay attention to that. That has an ultra, this new Hoyt payload rolling duffel. It looks like it's very large. I'm excited. Um, <laughs> so what you just said about that, I always knew that the elk, um, it, when their antlers were in velvet, you know, the amount of uh, timber and things like that was really a concern and the, and bugs and things like that were really a concern, but I've never heard anybody say, that the wind blowing through those antlers actually help cool the elk down. I've never heard that before. Um, yeah. That, so uh, that's, that's true. Huh? And when it starts to harden up, they don't have, of course they don't have the same effect, but when there's lots of blood thro- going through there, that's, that is a, a big cooling mechanism to them. Uh-huh. And that's, I mean, that's not just elk. That's any ungulate, your deer, moose, yeah. they all do the same. When you see those, you see those pictures from the parks and you see their racks sitting up over the grass and they're kind of bedded up on a ridge. That's what they're doing. They're cooling their body down by, by positioning their antlers in the wind. So yeah. Mm. I'd never really considered that. Um, So it's funny because my, my son drew, it's not a premium tag, but it's a good tag here in Colorado, kind of middle of the road tag took nine points, 10 points. And so we're going to be going in and because I have to leave on that Greenland trip, we've got the first half of the season basically to really concentrate on getting his bull killed. And a lot of times here in our part of Colorado, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think that those big bulls go hit the cows, like you said, until the first cows come in. And a lot of times that's not until 
the end of the first week of September. Um, yeah. And so in the place that we're going to be, there's l- water everywhere, water all over the place, you know, and I've always wondered about when those bulls do break off and head out all by themselves. It's a mystery where they go. Um, I, a lot of times I think that if you're fortunate enough to fortunate enough to catch them, then you have some idea, but I think that they break away from they, from where they were summering and they have this place where they're relaxing, gorging, eating, drinking, all of those things. If you are trying to pull one of those bulls in, in that transition phase, right when they're starting to think about getting interested in cows, one of those bigger, older age class bulls, it's all by himself. If you don't know where to ambush him, what's your second tactic for getting, for, for trying to get that bull? Like that's like a really hard time for elk, right? Cause sure. you're, you're just throwing dots in the dark. Like there's no rhyme or reason to where they're going to be, but there, there is one thing about the older bulls that it will carry through September. And this year, if I remember right, our full moon um, is earlier than the 20th this year. seems like it's like the 13th or 15th, something like that. Full moon will always trigger estrus. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think you'll have a little bit bigger of a window this year than you did last year. Plus it's a wet year and typically on wet years, our ruts a little bit earlier. So if I was just, kind of preemptively guessing for your hunt and it's fairly high country. Yeah. Yeah. And I would just locate the big herds of cows. Now, a lot of times the, the young bulls be pushing the cows around, right? It's typically your three thirties, three forties, fifties, fifties on my unit that start pushing the cows around. Um, so I, I'll, I'll locate those herds. I'll check out the herd bull, but I, I won't typically, run and gun the herd bull thinking he's the oldest age class in there. Typically your big bulls stay close, close enough that they can hear them and smell them, but far enough away, they're not challenging that bull because they don't really want to fight. And typically like once a cow does come into heat, they'll walk into the herd, hook her out of there, do their thing and let her go and they won't fight. And that's why those bulls are bigger because they don't typically burn the body fat. Those younger bulls are, if that makes sense. The next year they come in healthier and they have a bigger year because they walked into a healthy winter. Now, are you saying that some of those bigger, older bulls don't participate in the rut quite the same way as the other bulls do, or just at some point they do herd up or they never really herd up? Typically they don't herd up. Really? So So they just, they just kind of act like a stray dog on the outlier. This is a theory that I've heard on whitetails a lot. You know, mm-hmm. is that you find these giant bucks that grow to be, you know, they, they hit a completely different age class because they don't participate in the rut as hard as some of the other ones. The ones that are very aggressive and participate in the rut really hard get killed at four years old. Mm-hmm. And so you're saying a lot old, of these older age bulls, class elk, yeah, typically yeah. past nine years old, they don't typically herd cows. So, so you mentioned earlier, you've got two bulls on your target this year. One's 11 and one's 12 specifically bulls like that. Yeah. And I mean, you'll catch them with the herd. I I couldn't but say that they never, but they won't stay with them. I say like, they're, they're not, they're not running 
and Haramine that herd, they are coming in because they've come downwind, caught scent. They're coming in to find that cow that's in to peel her off, breed her, and then check again and then go back to bed or just kind of yep. act like a satellite. Like, I'm just going to hang out on the outliers and come in and sneak my cow when she's ready. Maybe like a fat, lazy satellite. Like <laughs> they'll, they follow the herds around, right? They yeah. like, they'll do the same thing. They just won't be active in it. Yeah. Like they, they yeah. just won't push them around. They might take a few for a day or two, but they, they won't keep them for more than a week ever. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. That was, that's, mm-hmm. that's another thing that see here in, here in Colorado, we just don't have that much experience with old age class bulls because our bulls get killed before they reach that age class. I would say right. that even in some of our best units, you, you might have one, one bull that's running around there somewhere that is in that age class over seven years old, but it's mm-hmm. rare. It is really, really, really rare, you know? Um, so when it's that rare, you don't have a whole lot of experience in dealing with them, you know? And I, I don't, you know, I did the, the, the bulls that I'm typically killing are either the ones that I'm not even going to say they're the ones that are hurting the cows up. The ones that are chasing those bulls around are the ones that I'm typically killing. But, uh, but hey, it, having somebody who has that much experience and that much knowledge about old, old bulls and how they act is, is very interesting to me, dude. That's that. Well, that's, that's a valid point. I was going to say the same thing. I was like, you know, and, and most of the guys that are listening to this are doing what you're doing. Yeah. It's just because, just because of tag availability, like where I'm yeah. running, non-residents have to be 25 point plus residents, 20 point plus. Sure. It's a once in a lifetime or every other lifetime tag for a lot of these people. So a lot of the stuff that I, I've retained on these big bulls is kind of worthless information. Right. Like you're going to carry a lot more kind of intel that might be helpful on that but i do like i mean i i think i was on unit two the last two years and we did have some giant 380 type bulls and they ran cows Mm -hmm. i don't know if they had the age class my bulls do like they might have been seven eight um but they had had the genetics right and they they also you know were bordering a national park like it's it's not like the public land type pressure right in, in those areas no, where it, I was at. So you're talking, if you're talking unit two in Colorado, we're talking a ultra premium tag. It is a right. once in a lifetime type tag. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, those, those are extremely limited. Those bulls have a much better chance of reaching an older age class than most of the rest of the state. Um, Agreed. And yeah, if you're, if you're hunting that kind of unit, having some knowledge about old bulls behavior is extremely valuable. Now, if you're going to a place that's an over the counter unit and you're waiting for a 350, you're going to wait for a hell of a long time. Like maybe your entire career, <laughs> you yeah, know what I, I mean? Gonna, I was going to yeah. say at least a couple of years. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like your entire career, uh, that, right. uh, just depending upon where you're, where you're at and how many, tags are allotted in that part of the state but um it's still valuable to know what the older age class bulls act like um and where you might be able to find them and how they are behaving before those first cows come 
all the way into into estrus um, because they're not near the cows until that point. A lot of a lot of guys don't realize that they'll come in there in the early part of September and they're hearing a bunch of bugling and a bunch of rut activity, but they're you know they're three year old bulls, four year old bulls that are that are running things. You know what I yep. mean? And yep. if there is an older one around, he might not get active until it actually happens till it actually, those first cows actually come in. Yep. Spot on. Yeah. Evan, you got anything else, brother? No, I usually, I'm the quiet one on elk stuff. Cause I'm trying to soak it all in. I don't, I don't have near the experience that you guys do. So like conversations like this are always very interesting to me. So, cause I'm lucky if I get to see a 300 inch bull during my elk <laughs> hunt. Oh. <laughs> yeah. See, and I, I always so. disagree with you on that because I, I, like I said earlier, I, elk and whitetail really are similar. Yeah. I think you have a lot more of those pieces to the puzzle than you think you do. Just elk are bigger. Their rotations are bigger. Their size are bigger. Um, wallows are just big scrapes. Elk have rub lines just like whitetails do. Preseason, August, you'll find them going down a creek bed, hitting every tree. Like yep. they're just big whitetails. Don't be intimidated by them. Like they're, they're the same kind of thing. Well, and I've got the the spot I typically hunt in Colorado. We go in, we camp three and a half miles in, and it's typically about a two and a half mile strip. And we're going from probably 9,800 to 12,000 vertical is kind of the, the face that we're working with. And it's a lot of drainages. And we've got one spot in dark timber where you can sit there and turn circles and you'll count five to seven um, rubs. It's, I mean, they hit every single tree, just like you say, but I've only ever seen one bull in there and we're hunting that first week. Cause I always, again, you've got, uh, you've got the holiday weekend. So I always take that holiday week to go out early September. Cause I don't have to take four days off and I get the weekend on either end. So I get, nine days to hunt so and then are they in there in there earlier and they're rubbing and i need to go find a different spot because they've come through there rubbed or am i just are we cycling right behind them for four days and so we are never in the same spot to meet them it's 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 a game that i have not uh not successfully gotten taken care of yet. that sounds to me like a spot they'd be in late august early september yeah like that i mean when they start stripping that's what they do and that's why it's every other tree and at that high of elevation because that's high i i would think that's an august type behavior rather right. than a rut behavior that's yeah. what my opinion is is that i've got yeah. some saddles that and benches that are just shredded but i think it was a bachelor group that was in there during august when they were when they were peeling and they yep. just tore the place hit everything, but they're not there when I'm back to hunt them. They're yeah. off wherever the cows are, you know, yep. it's typically it's mid September by the time I'm in there, you know, somewhere around there. Yeah. <laughs> but well, Ryan, it's always good to have you on, man. Will you need to do it again sometime soon? Like we said, if you want to find Ryan, find him on Instagram, Ryan underscore DC outfitters your jaw's going to hit the freaking ground when you start looking through his elk, his elk photos and elk pictures. I'm still just sitting here up on my other <laughs> monitor watching this bull raise his head. Did you, you killed that bull you, 
you said, Ryan, or one of your hunters did? Yeah, uh, we took uh, Jimmy John Leotode on that bull in 2020. And I mean, he was a ridiculous, that's a, that video's from, uh, it's, uh, handles rogue outdoorsman. His name's Trent Alt. Um, he, he actually had a camera down in there and got that video, which is really cool. And then we killed him about a, uh, probably a week after that video was taken. Well, uh, wanna, same area. If you want to do a lot of dreaming, just go check out Ryan's Instagram page and, and, and look through it. It'll get you in the yeah. mood before September starts. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thanks, Ryan. Uh, Ryan, hope everybody uh, hope everybody enjoyed it. Catch you next time. Thanks, you guys.